Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Lord, we do ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of our hearts. That for those who are here who are wounded in some way, you'd bring healing. You'd bring comfort to the brokenhearted. For those who are gripped with fear, that your peace would rest upon them. For those where fear is overwhelming you, it's like waves at an ocean just crashing over you. That you would lay it before Christ, that he would literally be your peace. That no matter what is ahead of you, he is with you. He won't leave you or forsake you. For all of us, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Give us knowledge and wisdom and instruction that we might know the truth. That we might stand firm in who you are in a culture that seems to be totally lost. We do pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me mention before I start teaching that we're going to continue with special worship services tonight at 6.30. It's going to be... Turn your clock on. It's daylight savings time. You were late. It's daylight savings I, I got it. I got it. Is your wife out of town? That must be the problem. She's the one who keeps him under control. But we're doing a very special worship service tonight in the apex, and the Ukrainians are leading it. Now, one thing I can guarantee is that somebody's going to be praying in tongues in that service. We just don't know which type. But I encourage you to come because let me, let me tell you this, if you haven't gotten to know the Ukrainians, you need to be intentional about doing so. Because what the Lord has done is brought us a bunch of people who know him well. There are 36 Ukrainians here that we are helping at this point. And they have a deep love for God, and it's so obvious to me because they've been traumatized so significantly. I would dare say none of us have ever had to flee our homes in an instant, never to go back, to live in unknown places, different countries, whoever would take you in for weeks until they finally found a church that would take care of them and make them part of our family. And yet what I see when I'm around them is this deep love for God and their faith is holding them strong doesn't mean it's easy, and there are a lot of tears shed, but I, I said recently, in fact, three of the Ukrainian ladies and I did a radio program re recently, and I said in that interview that we're learning more from them than they are from us, that they, we may be helping them physically, tangibly, but they're helping us spiritually. So, strongly encourage you to come tonight at 6.30 over in the Apex and just enjoy a special time of seeking God in that way. Now, what we've been doing for the last um, three weeks is talking about confronting the chaos. And I started this series, obviously, because there is so much chaos in our culture about things that are so foundational. And in the first teaching, I said, really, the crisis is a crisis of truth. What is the foundational truth of life? And I said we're going to go through this very slowly because we have to build at the foundation level before we can begin addressing issues. And so 
Three weeks ago, I was talking about this idea of truth. Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And the assault on truth in the culture is an assault upon God himself, denying who he is. And there is a conspirator who's behind it, that is Satan. He's always, throughout all of history, tried to deny the reality of Christ, tried to attack who he is, keep people in bondage to falsehood because he's the perpetrator of lies. But the truth is that God is the one who's created all things and that every foundational principle of truth is found in him. Everything we know is because of him. I've been dwelling upon this concept lately. Everything that you and I can perceive or understand is because God has made it possible to do so. In other words, for you to be able to separate green and yellow and red color, God has given you the capacity first to see it, to store in your mind some understanding of it, and to know the difference. If it was not for him choosing to design in such a way, you couldn't know that. In fact, you realize there is nothing that you could know apart from him establishing the conditions in the world outside of you so that you can understand it and then establishing within you the capacity to perceive it and know it. And you see, he's done it this way because ultimately he is teaching us about himself. Everything that you can know, he is teaching us about himself. And so this crisis of truth is right at the foundation of attacking the one who gives us understanding of truth. And we asked last week the question of, well, is there a God? That's the foundational starting point. And we live in a culture where many people would say, no. Or even if they would acknowledge God in some way, they don't acknowledge him for the true God that exists from whom the moral law comes, one that we should humble ourselves before. In fact, the psalm says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. A lot of people may not outwardly say there is no God because they're afraid to, but in their heart, they're living that way. And yet, what the scripture declares in Romans is that every person knows there's a God. There is no exception. Never has there been a time or a place in history where a person could say, I had no idea there was a God. Because the creation, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. You can walk outside and see that, or you can be right here and see it, just talking to another person. The capacity of an individual to converse with you is a demonstration of God's eternal power. That these things have been clearly seen from what is made so that men are without excuse. That is, no person can say, I had no idea. No, what stands between us and knowledge of God really is our own pride, our lust, lust of the eyes, and lust of the flesh. Because we want to walk in selfish pride and our sensual desires that we want to push God out of the picture because we don't want to be accountable to him. In fact, in the rest of that scripture, it says that men suppress the truth by their wickedness. That we suppress the truth because our wicked desires in our heart are stronger than our desire to know God. That's really what it boils down to. And I also said last week that the goal of human life is to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. I'm so convinced of this, that this is the purpose of life. A lot of people think the goal of life is something else, and it's usually something selfish. But the goal of human life is that you and I would be transformed and conformed to the likeness of Christ. So that first the Spirit of God would come to dwell within us, give us saving faith, and we would be in relationship with him. But from that point forward, that you would be refined, broken, in order that you would become like him. And I think as long as you live, God is in the process of transforming you. That's why 
a lot of the difficulty of life is there. See, to many people, the difficulty of life seems like an obstacle or an enemy. The difficulty of life is the way through which God teaches you, trains you, breaks you from your old selfishness, your sinfulness, and makes you like Christ. It's through the difficult seasons of life that you are transformed more into his image. And you see, the problem is we want to conform God to our image rather than us be conformed to his. That's where the culture is right now. If there is any idea that there is a God in our culture, it's a God made in our image who does things our way, not one who is holy and righteous, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, but one who winks at our sinfulness, one who encourages us to indulge our sinful nature. But you see, Christ did not die on the cross in order that you would continue in your sinfulness. He died on the cross in order that you and I would be set free from our bondage to sin, that our will would be freed up, that we could make godly choices. Now this week, where I want to go, starts with this question of whence came you. Whence means from where? So from where did you come? And of course, we can say, well, biologically, you came from your parents, this kind of thing. But really, the question is, where did we all come from? And if you live in the busy, normal world, and you're paying your bills and going to work and all those things, you don't maybe spend a lot of time dwelling upon the fact that we're on this round ball suspended out in the middle of nowhere with nothing holding it up. I mean, that's reality. And yet we're here with a sense of order that somehow life matters. And the question is, how did we get here? Scripture is pretty clear about that. From Genesis all the way through, it declares that God has made everything. In the Psalms it says that he's made everything for his own purpose. Even the wicked for the day of evil, and that means for the day of judgment. That he has allowed evil as a part of his creation for purposes that he has. And as I've said many times before, I think he's allowed it so we can see the contrast between good and evil and make genuine choices. But right from the beginning, in Genesis, the scripture declares that God created the heavens and the earth. That the spirit was hovering above the waters, that the Holy Spirit was involved in this creation process. That he created Man, in his image, he created them male and female. That he created the, all the species according to their kind. The scripture declares God created. And this is essential to your understanding of the chaos today. You see, we've been talking about truth. Is God real? And now we're talking about did God create? The culture says to those things, no, that there is no truth, there is no God, there's no God who created. If that's true, if those three things are false, if there is no truth, if there is no God, if God did not create, we need to close the doors and leave immediately and just sell the place and say we're done. Because... That's so foundational, right at the core of everything. That's why we're talking about it before we're going to talk about issues. And this idea that God created is replete. That is, it's everywhere in Scripture. In Isaiah, it says, this is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build? Talking to the people of Israel, how will they build a house for him? It goes on to say, where is my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things so that they came into being? Theologians talk about God created ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. He spoke it into being. Now, you and I can speak some things into being. In other words, we can say something and bring it to pass. But we don't have the creative capacity of God to speak out of nothing something. 
And furthermore, what's of greater significance is how do you speak life into existence? The scripture talks about the breath of life. He breathed life into us. Because it's one thing for me, I like to do carpentry things. I like to build tables. Okay, I can build a table, but I can't create life. And really, the only reason I can build a table is what? God gave us first the materials to do so, and then he gave a person like me or anybody else who does that type of thing some capacity to fashion something in a certain form. But he had to do two things. He had to first provide the material, and then he had to provide the capacity to do it. He created it out of nothing. Then the scripture declares in Colossians this, that here it's talking about Jesus, that he is the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean that he was a created being. It means he's first in priority or in the hierarchy. And for by him, all things were created. That by Jesus himself, all things were created, whether things in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible. You know, there are a lot of invisible things that God created that you and I can't see, such as the angels. We know the angels are very prevalent. They're at work. You have entertained angels, the scripture says, without knowing it. And you will judge the angels, the scripture says. That'll be an interesting thing. When you get to heaven, you're going to face judgment, give an account for your life. But at some point, you're going to be the judge. God's going to show you all the things the angels did for you. Now, in my case, I should have died, I don't know, 40 or 50 times before I was 25 years old. All the foolish things I did, the reckless driving I did, stuff like that. I'm sure there's an angel going, oh, he is wearing me out. So when I meet that angel, I'm going to say, give him an extra large reward. But you see, there are a lot of things that we don't know about that God has created. In fact, there are even things in this world that are very obvious to us that are invisible, such as the wind. You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind. And you see, God has created all things. It says, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things are created by him and for him. That means absolutely everything, including you and me, that we were created for him. Now, it's not that God in some way is lonely, he's desperate, he's needy. He didn't create us because he needed something. He's complete in every form. He, comp he created us because of his desire to express his love. That we're created for him because he desires to express his love, to express his creative power, his majesty, to each one of us, that he's before all things and in him all things are held together. Now, I believe what the scripture says is true, that God created all things. Yet, when I went to school, I was taught that we were formed by an evolutionary process out of some primordial scum, so to speak, that somehow some life formed there over a long period of time and that we evolved. And you know what? I accepted that as true. I had no reason not to. And I did so for years. I can remember in junior high studying that and thinking, well, that's true. And then like in college, taking a biology class. And again, I'm sure that was a significant part of that. I had no reason to think otherwise. And yet, then when I became a Christian, I began hearing people who would talk about the truth of Scripture and who would say it's incompatible with evolutionary theory. And so I began to question, began to doubt, began to wonder. It's interesting. I've seen a Gallup poll that's done regularly about this. And... Uh, Ordinarily, about 40 to 50% of people in this poll believe that God created without an evolutionary process. 
In other words, despite the fact that evolution's been taught in schools now for decades, for my entire life, that about half of the population says, I don't believe it. I believe God created. Then on top of that, about another 20 to 30% believe that God created using some evolutionary process, but they still believe God created. So about 70 to 80%, depending upon the year of the poll, believe that God created the world. That we didn't just come about by random chance. Yet there is this problem of, well, how do I reconcile what I thought science was saying, what I thought was a fact, with what I'm understanding scripturally? How do I reconcile that? And I think, now I don't remember exactly, but I think in my earliest Christian life, I tried to adopt what is called theistic evolution. That is, the idea that somehow God created, but he used an evolutionary process, and you can cram that into the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And there are a lot of God-fearing people who would argue that that's the case. In fact, um, uh, it's been unfortunate, but in my life, I have never had a good Old Testament class. Just haven't had one. And I've had more than one. But they've always been disappointing. And I remember the Old Testament class I had in seminary was just, uh, it was a very scholarly approach to the scripture. What it really missed was the Holy Spirit. And this was a very conservative seminary, a Baptist seminary. And what it really missed was the Holy Spirit, that is the Old Testament class. And the author of the textbook was, had a very scholarly approach. And I remember we got to the subject of evolution and talking about it with regard to Genesis, things like that. And he tried so desperately to fit theistic evolution into the scripture. And really, it was just pathetic. Because what I read, I realized what he was doing was trying to bow down to the academic establishment to keep his reputation and look scholarly. But I was just, ugh. And so, as I said, I, I think I tried to do that early on, except theistic evolution. Some talk about deistic evolution. That is, deism says God wound up the world, put it in motion, and he doesn't have anything to do with it. Some say that's the way he did it. But really, that's not what the Scripture declares. There are a lot of problems with that. The Scripture says God created according to their kind in his image. He created Adam and Eve specifically and so what really helped my thinking was many years ago, I read this book by a guy by the name of Philip Johnson, who's a law professor at the time at Cal Berkeley, which is an extremely liberal school. Yet he was a conservative in the law school. And his book, I think was the correct title, was Darwin on Trial. Now he's a lawyer. And what he was doing was saying, if he was arguing a law case, he would be looking at the evidence that the other side has and the evidence that his side has. He would try to poke holes in the other argument and make his argument strong. And basically, that's what he did in the book was say, okay, here is the supposed evidence, but look at all the gaps and the holes and the problems of evolutionary theory. And then I read a lot of other things that made me begin to think differently. And now for a long period of time, I've been thinking, there's no way that God created all things. There's no way we came about just by random chance, evolved, and so forth. But people would say, well, you're not a scientist. And science has proven, and you can have your little theological ideas, but uh, you need to listen to those who have scientific expertise. So for that reason, I've invited somebody to join us today. Michael, if you'll come. Many of you will know this gentleman. This is Dr. Michael West, who is um, one of our elders here at the church. And Michael is a humble guy, so I don't think he would say this about himself. But Michael has a PhD in biochemistry from Princeton, okay? So that's an Ivy League school. That's as good as it gets. He could get a job at any university in the country with those credentials. And he wouldn't talk about it that way, but um, if there's somebody qualified to speak from a scientific perspective on this subject, I certainly think Michael 
is that person. So thank you, A, for being willing to talk about it, but maybe you should share a little bit about your journey and how you came to the conclusions that you have. Yeah, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to come and speak on this topic and a little funny story, and I thank you for the introduction. I was met at the door with a really important question, and that was, are you gonna bore us this morning? And, and so I am known to be very technical in, in what I bring forward, but it's just out of an appreciation of the majesty and the awesomeness of God's creation. So I'm gonna try my best to make it not boring and interesting, but much like Robert, when I, I, I actually grew up in the church uh, and I hadn't really thought too much about evolutionary theory. I took biology just like everyone else in middle school and high school and then on to college and then went on to graduate school and really just had this idea that the two may seem on the surface to conflict with one another, but surely you know, scientific evidence is strong enough that it's true and the Bible is true at the same time. And it turns out, as, as, uh, as Robert mentioned, I not only had the opportunity to go to graduate school and study molecular biology, but my thesis was actually on the molecular biology of proteins. And if you know anything about the biology of life, proteins are at the core of every process and every structure within a cell. And so what I didn't realize at the time is that the Lord was showing me truth through the experimentation that I was doing every single day for six years, but I didn't recognize it at the time. And it wasn't until I graduated and I, I worked at Eastman for a couple of years out of graduate school and a coworker really challenged me on this thinking. And it wasn't until then, which would have been around 25 years ago, it wasn't until then that I started thinking and really challenging myself around what I believed and what I didn't believe and the truth of scripture. And what I quickly came to realize is exactly what Robert described. God designed, he created, and there's nothing else. No matter what the scientific evidence is purported to say, the scientific evidence is overwhelming that God created just as he described in Genesis chapter one. So in your journey of coming to that conclusion, you began to look at things that argued against evolutionary theory. I guess it's important for us to say evolutionary theory. theory. Not fact. There are laws, you could describe that versus theory. Maybe we should start there. Yeah, so of course, uh, evolutionary theory is purported to suggest that over billions of years, life sprung from non-life, uh, which in and of itself is impossible, and we'll get to that in just a second. But what also needs to happen is over time, even over the course of billions and billions of years, you're expecting that an organism, a simple organism, then somehow takes on the characteristics and genetic material that would allow it to form into something more complex. And this must happen millions and 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 millions, you get the point, right? Millions of time until you have come from a single cell out of the primordial soup to something that looks like your lovely faces sitting in these chairs. And it's just not possible. There is no observable process through which any cell, any cell can take on the characteristics from genetic material from outside of itself. There's no observable process that allows that to happen. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that, and again, here, sorry. And, and I will just, I'll just take an aside here. As I was praying this morning, I, I prayed for a specific and unique blessing on this group of people because we are gonna talk about very technical things and we're all running on one less hour of sleep. So, <laughs> so I'm gonna try to, try to keep it as, as simple as possible. But you know, if you think about it, the, the biochemistry of life is predicated on the fact that we have genes and genes are made up of DNA, right? The DNA encodes the information that makes any organism an organism. But it's just information. That information is then translated and then transcribed into proteins. And proteins have a myriad of functions within the cell. They catalyze reactions, they can be structural, they fight off disease. But let's go back. If DNA encodes the information to create what is known as life, all the parts that you need in order to have life, then the question is where did that information come from? Right, there's, again, there's no observable process through which 
inorganic material or otherwise randomly forms into some informational code. And so when you look at the genetic code, the word code implies a what? An author. So immediately you start asking the question, well, did DNA come first or did proteins come first? And where did this informational system come from? And who was the author of that informational system? And immediately, if you believe that God was the creator, you know that God wrote the code that then translated into life itself. Now, evolutionary theory has been around for like 150 years, but for about the first 100 years, there was not information about the genetic code and so forth. But all of that information is specific to species. Yes. Tell us how that can't transfer, so to speak. Yeah, so again, we, we oftentimes think about evolutionary theory being mutational, mutation-driven, right? Some kind of mutation within the genetics of, a, of an organism changes in response to some uh, outside pressure within the environment that causes that organism to transform into something different. Well, in reality, that's not the case. What we are describing in that situation is speciation. That is, changes within a given species that allows that species to compete within the environment that it's living in. So I'll give you a very simple example, right? If, for instance, you're observing a population of birds, and for whatever reason within the environment, the birds, the only birds that can survive are those that have long beaks because they need long beaks to get to the food. I'm making this up, it's hypothetical. Well, what's going to happen over time is that the birds that persist are what? Those that have long beaks, why? Because the birds with short beaks can't get food, they can't compete for food, and so forth, so, for, so then they die out of the population. So now you're left with birds with long beaks, not frogs or dinosaurs or cats or dogs, right? You still have birds. The information for the beak was still in the genetic code of the bird. The pressure within the environment changed the population dynamics in such a way that birds with longer beaks persist, those with short beaks do not. It's the survival of the fittest that you hear about, right? And that's real, that's speciation. That is under no circumstances evolution, macro or micro. So they're, they're adaptations, yes. but there's not changes in species, and that would be impossible because of the DNA information being different for each species. That's exactly right, and no process to get the DNA from one organism into the other organism that then makes that into some new organism. And then evolutionary theory basically says that mutations, changes, led to some improvement. That's correct. But that's not what we see? It's, it's not the case. And again, I've had the great pleasure over the past 25 years to work in drug development for three different uh, biopharmaceutical companies. And I've become excruciatingly aware of the fragility of life as it relates to our genes. And one small change within our genetics can have a very detrimental effect as it relates to disease and death. And so therefore, if you start thinking about changes as it relates to mutation within our DNA, you're not gaining information, you're actually losing beneficial information. That's why God designed us with two pairs of every gene. Because if you have a defective gene, you have a backup copy. And the hope is, and the plan was that that backup gene, right, that second gene, can overcome the deleterious effects of the mutated or the deficient gene. And so again, when you think about mutation as a driver for evolution, it's impossible because you're not gaining information over time, you're actually losing information. And there'd be some laws of physics that would work against yeah. that yeah. very concept? Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll tell a, a uh, a, kind of a funny story, I guess. So uh, last weekend, I had the great pleasure of visiting Cades Cove for the first time. I'm very embarrassed. You know, I've lived in East Tennessee for most of my life, and this was the first time I'd visited Cades Cove. And it was that time when you roll down your window and you're next to a creek, you hear the peeping sound, right? The peeping sound, you hear the spring peepers. And if you know anything about the spring peepers, they're frogs, right? And in springtime, they come out of their hibernation. They're in suspended animation over the winter. And then when it warms up, they start peeping. And the peeping you hear 
is the male frog saying, hey, <laughs> come on over here, right? Come on over here. And so if you think about it, right, all life comes from other life, right? The male frog is saying, hey, we need to procreate. It's time for procreation. And that's the way God designed it, right? A male and a female, right? One cell, another cell, fertilization, and a week or so later, you have a tadpole, right? Life does not come from non-life material. Life always comes from living material. That is a law. That is a stated law. It's the law of biogenesis. That is to say, life always, always, always comes from life. Now, here's a more graphic detail. And I don't at all recommend anyone doing this experiment. If I was, I had, had an idea in my head that I wanted to go catch a frog, one of those tiny little peepers, put it in a blender and disorder that frog. I could sit and observe that frog in the blender for eons. And although every single molecule, every single ingredient needed to make that frog is in that blender, no matter how much heat, no matter how much energy, no matter how much anything I put into that blender to get that frog to leap out, it's not going to happen. And that's twofold, right? Number one, life always comes from life, but as Robert mentioned, that also you have disordered the frog. And unfortunately for us, the second law of thermodynamics suggests that everything is moving towards disorder. When you walk into your house, you probably some days have that feeling, oh man, yes, everything naturally, especially if you had children, things typically naturally go towards disorder. As a matter of fact, that biscuit or oatmeal or cereal that you ate this morning is right now in your body trying to keep it all together. It is, it's trying to keep it all together because there are forces that are trying to move you towards disorder. And so that frog in a blender is a stark example of even when you have all the right ingredients, once disordered, it takes an enormous amount of energy, impossible amounts of energy in order to reorder that frog. And it just will not happen, especially via random processes in nature. And one of the things that Philip Johnson, the law professor I mentioned, argued, he says, look at the fossil record. The fossil record should show millions of transitional species if we have evolved. It does not. What you see is all these intact, complete species in fossils in certain time periods, and only a handful of supposed transitional ones that are very questionable. And apparently, the argument would be that a species could not transition because it couldn't survive because of the concept of irreducible complexity. Maybe you could explain that to us. Yeah, the concept of irreducible complexity is an important one because uh, it, it basically states that there are certain systems that essentially, even if you pick them apart at the molecular level, without all of the parts together, they no longer function. So an eye is, you mentioned, you know, how we see through photoreceptors, et cetera. The eye is oftentimes given as an example. And that is, you can have all of the parts of the eye, but remove one and no longer does it function, right? We might not be able to see if you remove the photoreceptors, you can't see. If you don't have the lens, that it doesn't bend the light appropriately. And so there are certain systems that essentially at their core cannot be reduced to their molecular level and still retain their functionality. And so now with evolutionary theory, you're asking that multiple parts come together for a specific purpose and it's irreducible complexity that sort of eliminates the idea that that could potentially happen. So the more you describe things, you're really talking about a statistical impossibility. Yeah, yeah. Yet in the academic field, if you are a person who believes God created, you're pretty likely to be canceled, except for maybe in a strong private Christian school. You, you can't get grant money to do studies on creation. You can only get it to do studies on evolution. There's this whole mindset that just is overwhelming. Can you speak to why you think it's that way? Yeah, absolutely. So if by definition, 
science must eliminate anything that is supernatural. Supernatural by definition is beyond the natural, beyond what we can observe in nature. And so once you eliminate the potential of a supernatural being, God in this case, then you have to hold on to truth that is non-truth, that makes no sense, even four billions of years or evolutionary theory or Big Bang theory, et cetera. And so again, remember that all science is biased. And if anyone tries to convince you otherwise, know that all science is biased. We all are human. We come with our own biases. We all come with our own belief systems. And oftentimes those belief systems, especially in the scientific community, eliminate the supernatural, eliminate the potential of God. And so once that is eliminated, now you must justify that elimination through fantastical assumptions that are impossible. And Robert mentioned statistical probability. One thing that I'll share with you is that during graduate school, I studied, I think I mentioned to you a, a lot, uh, studied a lot about the, the structure of proteins and how they fold or, or don't fold. And as a quick, now we're gonna get a little technical here. Um, as a quick reminder, proteins are made up of amino acids, right? Within your body, there are 20, primarily 20 amino acids that make up all the proteins in your body. And proteins really make the action happen. They catalyze reactions, they make functional parts of your body, et cetera. And so if you start asking the question, well, what is an average length of a protein chain, a length of amino acids in an average protein within your body? It's three to 400 amino acids, okay? Three to 400 amino acids is the average size of a protein. All right, so now you've got 20 amino acids to choose from, although there are hundreds in nature God in his infinite wisdom used 20 within our cells. So the question then you have to ask yourself is what is the probability of a protein through random chance assembling in a specific order? And I can tell you through firsthand experience that the order of a protein matters far more than you can imagine. One change and all of a sudden the protein does not fold. And it's the folding of the protein that gives it its function. Okay, so now, if you ask the question, what's the probability of a average protein folding and assembling in, but through random chance? The odds of that happening are one in one with 191 zeros one in one with 191 zeros. Now, that's, those odds are terrible, right? Those are not odds that I would take. Now, just to put that into perspective, statisticians have essentially defined a threshold, a threshold of impossibility. And that threshold of impossibility is one in one with 50, five zero zeros. Okay, are you hearing me? One and one with 50 zeros. So anything with a smaller probability than that is impossible. Impossible regardless of the amount of time that you give it, impossible regardless of the amount of soup that you have, it's impossible. It's impossible. And so the chance of a random average sized protein coming together through random chance is one in one with 191 zeros, I would call that impossible. Thank you, thank you. Gold star for the student right here on the front. Now there are some scientists who are not creationists who have uh, written and argued that we should abandon evolutionary theory. There's a professor at Harvard, his name was uh, Jay Gould, who a number of years ago published a paper saying we should abandon evolutionary theory because of the sheer lack of evidence. And he was not advocating creationism. But then uh, somebody like Michael Behe talks about intelligent design. He had a big impact on you. Maybe you yes. could describe a little bit about his perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because Michael Behe, he's the, he, he is a, also a biochemist. Uh, and this was the book that was handed to me after graduate school to say, hey, you really ought to challenge what you're believing. And he, he is not a creationist. He's a scientist like myself that really started investigating natural processes and the complexity 
and the beauty of life systems. And he, he coined the term irreducible complexity and basically suggested that when you look at life itself, even at the single cell level, when you start looking specifically at the molecular level and the complexity of the molecules and the complexity of the processes and how all of life really rests on that complexity and all of that working in sync, that it's impossible to imagine that through random processes, somehow a cell was formed by bringing disparate parts together in, sort of, in some sort of random process. And so in some ways he was suggesting that a cell itself is irreducibly complex. That is to say, you remove one part of the cell and all of a sudden the cell no longer lives. It's, unable, it's no longer viable. And so that was really the first sort of catalyst, pardon the chemistry reference, right? The catalyst that sparked my interest in this area is that, okay, if the cell itself is irreducibly complex and it's so complex inside the cell that it's impossible to imagine a scenario where all these parts came together, even at the most basic level, to then over time, even millions and millions of years, form a more complex organism, then there must be something wrong here. Now there is the problem of what I see now, I couldn't see before I knew Christ. The Holy Spirit dwelling within any of us gives us understanding we can't have apart from that. So if I'd been a scientist at that time looking at the evidence that's out there now, I probably would have been an evolutionist. That when you come to evidence and see it with the reality of the handiwork of God, things look altogether different. And I think that's what many would argue is there are a lot of people who are firmly entrenched in believing it has to be an evolutionary process, but the evidence against it really is overwhelming. It is absolutely overwhelming. I mean, you, th you think about the statistical impossibility, you just think about the complexities and also just the majesty that you see at the molecular level. And it's important to understand the molecular level, right? Darwin had no idea about what was going on in a cell. He had no idea about what was happening at the genetic level. He just viewed what was going on in an environment. And we tend to think that evolutionary theory started with Darwin, but it turns out that evolutionary theory dates back all the way back to the Greeks and maybe even before the Greeks. And it's interesting that Robert brought this, uh, this scripture up from Romans because as we all know, the Romans borrowed, let's say, borrowed a lot of their philosophical thinking from the Greeks. And it could be that Paul is speaking directly into this issue there in the Roman church. And we also know that later on, he writes to Timothy and says, you need to ignore some of this foolish scientific talk that is all around you because it's foolishness and treat it as foolishness. Don't get sucked into foolish conversations. Make sure that you are keeping focus on Christ himself. So this has been a problem for eons, right? To coin a term, right? For years, all the way back to the time of Paul and, and likely before. And so there's nothing new here. And what Paul and the disciples and the apostles were all feeling was the chaos around them now that Jesus had entered the picture. And now the, the, the culture around them was trying to dispel the reality of Christ. Well, as I mentioned earlier, to me, this is an absolutely critical subject if you're gonna talk about the moral issues in today's society. And when you recognize that God created, according to their kind, male and female, that it has huge ramifications for much of the discussion going on in society today. And I appreciate Michael sharing from a scientific standpoint, because to me, the evidence is overwhelming that God created. Any last things you would like to share? Yeah, I agree. And I would just say, especially for the young people here, I had no clue as to what the Lord was showing me as I was going through you know, my schooling as well as then even in graduate school. Uh, but, I, but I would just challenge everyone here to really challenge your thinking and really humbly and respectfully challenge any idea that seems to contradict either directly or indirectly, the truth of scripture. That's what's so important, is that God did create. There is truth written in the Bible that we must begin our worldview with, as opposed to bringing a scientific worldview and 
matching it up with scripture. Well, thank you for coming and sharing very much. Well, as I mentioned, if we're going to talk about the chaos of today's culture, this is essential. Because did God create, did he create us with specific purposes? Was it a part of his infinite wisdom that he would create us male and female, allow us to procreate? Is he teaching us phenomenally through that process, which I think he is? And see, all that's so foundational. So for the last three weeks, I've said, I've raised this question of a crisis of truth. Is there a God? Did he create? Well, the culture says no to all of those. And I think, well, I would say absolutely he did. The answer is yes to all of those. And you can see that when the Holy Spirit instructs you and teaches you if you humbly approach him. But then... Given that I believe that's true, there still arises many questions about how do we understand the truth in today's culture, apply it in a way that God would want us to do? Because we're not seeking truth in order to condemn. We're seeking truth in order to do what I said a few weeks ago, that is offer hope. I said something a few weeks ago that a church that does not know the truth cannot offer hope. But when you know what is true, then you can really offer hope to people. And you see, it really does revolve around having a sound mind, a clear mind about what is the truth. And so we're going to reflect upon that in song. And I encourage you to use it as a time of prayer in your own life. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org. And make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.